I'm Dr. Ann Katz, and welcome to Sexually Speaking, a podcast about all things related to sexuality with zero sensationalism and lots of information. For the last 20 years, I've worked with individuals and couples who are experiencing sexual difficulties, mostly those related to cancer treatment. I've written a whole lot of articles and books on the topic and traveled all over the world, educating healthcare providers and people with cancer. It's been a great adventure on many levels, and now I've started a small private practice for anyone experiencing sexual problems, especially those related to any kind of illness, infertility, etc. You can learn more about me, my books, and other writing on my website, www.drannkatz.com. Today, I'm really happy to introduce you to Dr. Barry McCarthy, a colleague and role model of mine who for many years has educated and enlightened the sex therapy community with his erudite thoughts and writing about sexuality. Dr. McCarthy is a professor emeritus, a clinical psychologist, and sex therapist. He has written 22 books and 120 articles in the professional literature and so much more. His latest book, Contemporary Male Sexuality, Confronting Myths and Promoting Change, is a must-read for anyone in a relationship with one or more of the male species. I think that men could benefit too, but you know, men don't like to read. Like all his books, this one is really accessible. It's written in plain language. It contains stories about couples, straight and gay, that highlight his understanding of, in this case, male sexuality. Welcome to my podcast, Barry. Thank you so much for being here. Pretty wonderful to be here. I have to tell you, I love this book. It's a slim volume and it's really a great read. It's an entertaining read in some parts. And I think it really explains so much about male sexuality, which, you know, many people just kind of regard as an on and off switch. You know, the myth about the man as the energizer bunny, able to have an erection and sexually perform under any circumstances. So, Let's talk a little bit about the myths related to male sexuality and your understanding of that. Well, the most important thing is this, that male sexuality needs to be treated with empathy and respect. There's a tendency to either demonize it as destructive and harmful people, rape, child sexual abuse, or on the other extreme, to put it on a pedestal that says men can do anything, that that males... Sexuality is so much stronger than female sexuality that men dominate sexually. I think there's also this tendency that says men are not supposed to have sexual problems. That you have to be shameful if you have a sexual problem, rather than understanding that 40% of males are dealing with sexual problems and that dramatically goes up with aging and illness. And that what the man doesn't want to feel that he's a second-class citizen He wants to feel that he's a first-class citizen and can deal with this in a way that allows him to enjoy sex in terms of desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction, not just about orgasm. So you want this to be an empathic, respectful way of understanding men and couples. And one of the things that really bothers me as a writer and as a clinician is that the basic model is the good enough sex model. It's a couple approach rather than an individual approach. Talks about pleasure rather than performance. And it is adopted by women so much easier than it is by men. Men say that's settling. It's second class. And what I say to my male clients is, do you want to be a wise man and you can be sexual in your 60s, 70s, and 80s? Or if you cling to the old model of male sex, you're going to stop being sexual in your 50s and 60s. 
And that's something most people don't understand is that when couple sex stops, it is almost always the man's choice. Not because he doesn't want to be sexual, but he's lost his comfort and confidence with erections and intercourse. And he says, I don't want to start something I can't finish. Interesting. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about how we really often just conceptualize male sexual function as the ability or inability to have an erection. And there's so much more besides the arousal piece. And this is something that I certainly see in men who've had prostate cancer, which forms, you know, a really big piece of my practice is the, the disconnect or, or the lack of connection that they see or experience between orgasm and ejaculation. So men who've had a radical prostatectomy will no longer ejaculate, but they can absolutely still have an orgasm, sometimes actually more intense than before, and they can have orgasms without erections. That's a very important learning for men, that you can really have pleasure, eroticism, and orgasm. You don't need an erection for that. Again, you don't want to say to the man, don't worry about erections or, or avoid intercourse. But what you want to say to him and to them as a couple is that sensual sexuality, playful sexuality, and erotic sexuality are all first class. This idea that sex is only about intercourse and is only about perfect performance is really a poison on the man and on their couple relationship. Yeah, that's so true. So what is the good enough sex model? Shouldn't we be striving for perfection? How come is good enough good enough? Well, actually, I take a very, especially for men over 30 or 40, I take a very strong anti-perfectionism approach that what you want to adapt is variable, flexible couple sexuality, not perfect performance. And you also want to turn to your partner as your intimate neurotic friend rather than somebody to perform for. So the core of good enough sex is that it's a couple concept, not an individual performance concept. And the other core is that sensual, playful, and erotic sexuality all have value in and of itself. It isn't intercourse or nothing. And that in recovering from illness, from disability, from cancer, that the biggest challenge is to fight the old approach of male sexuality. And that is you need total control and total predictability. And that's why so many men feel that, and they have to perform for their uh, partner, that the only answer for them is a penile prosthesis because that will give you more control. The problem is it is very difficult for most men and couples to integrate a prosthesis into their couple sexual style of intimacy, pleasuring, and eroticism. This idea that if you build it, they will come is not true. That often you have a prosthesis, but you don't have a sex life. One of my patients some years ago, he was a man in his 60s, um, engaged in life, very physically active, and he had a radical prostatectomy and no erections, no matter what he did. At one point, he was using penile self-injection, which, you know, has a significant ick factor for most men, right? I don't believe any man grows up thinking one day he's going to stick a needle in the side of his penis to have an erection. It's, you know, it's. I often say that my patients have to be really desperate enough to, to go for that. Well, Anne, can I make a point about that? And that is, when you talk to the man, it's better to talk to him if he's in a relationship, whether it's a straight or gay relationship 
with his partner there. A hundred percent, always. So both of their preferences and feelings are important. And if they're going to use a press a injection, one of the most important things for them say what are they comfortable with? Are they better? Is is it better off for him to do the injection or for her to do the injection? Should you do the injection before you begin being sexual, or do you play sexually and then you do the injection? It isn't a right or wrong. It's what is the right fit for you? What are you comfortable with? Absolutely. And I insist on seeing couples and often men and women will come to see me alone. I think they kind of want to check me out. They're not sure what this counseling means. You know, I've had questions like, do we have to have sex in front of you? Um, and you've probably heard them too. Right. And so the partner, male or female, when when I'm doing a test dose of the injection, and even before that, right? So if somebody does show up by themselves, I say to them, you are not going to fix this problem. Your partner has to be with you because they are part of the solution or what, whatever comes next. Mm -hmm. And certainly for the injection, the partner has to be there in part to be a chaperone for me. You know, I'm a woman now alone in a room with a man who is, who is exposing his genitals. It's, you know, I have to be a little bit careful about that. And I think it's really important also for the partner to see and learn how this is done because very often they become the person who does the injection. This is especially important in men who have a, a tummy, right? You know, that typical male, you know, central obesity or that, you know, that's, that's kind of what happens. And sometimes, especially after treatment for prostate cancer, they experience genital shrinkage, which is also is another whole issue, right, with the embarrassment and the shame and, you know, not being able to urinate in a public washroom because of dribbling and all kinds of stuff. You know, so much shame around this. I also, you know, really am, uh, recently have started bumping on the term sexual performance. Why do we call it a performance? Like, who's the audience, right? It's an audience of one. And, and is he or she really an audience? It's an audience of your partner. The biggest male fear is this idea that my partner will no longer see me as a sexual man. And I think that's right. You're exactly right about sexual shame that it's bad for men, women, and couples, but it's particularly common with men. It's this idea that says, I'm not good enough sexually. I don't have a strong enough erection. I haven't had enough sex. I don't have enough partners. You know, one of my favorite of all statistics is 85% of men believe that their penis is smaller than average. Makes no sense at all, statistically or any other way. But it's an example. And, you know, when so many men when they masturbate, they feel ashamed, partly because they're using uh, things like porn. But what I tell them is that the way to understand porn is it's an erotic fantasy dimension. It has nothing to do with you as a person, real life, male or couple sexuality. It's an erotic fantasy dimension. Yeah, and helpful, you know, really helpful. You know, certainly, you know, you, you often hear people when I'm having sex with my partner or being sexual with my partner, you know, I'm thinking about, I mean, I don't know, you know, Brad Pitt. <laughs> it wouldn't work for me, but, you know, I mean, you know, some sort of celebrity. And there's a lot of shame about that, too. Well, you know, one of the most important concepts, in my view, about healthy male and couple sexuality is this mantra of intimacy, pleasuring, and eroticism. 
And in traditional male sexual socialization, the emphasis is only on eroticism. The man has to learn to value both intimacy and pleasuring. And the woman needs to find her erotic voice rather than say eroticism belongs to the man or belongs to the poor. That you can find what is erotic for you as an individual and as a couple. Let me say the other thing about dynamite sex every time. You know, I love dynamite sex. I do. But if you look at the science, what the science says is the best sex is mutual and synchronous. And what you mean by that is both the, both partners feel desire, pleasure, eroticism, and satisfaction. But most sex is actually asynchronous, better for one partner than the other. And it's one of the most interesting things with aging men is that usually for men under 40, the sex is better for him than for her. And for most couples over 65, asynchronous sex tends to be better for the woman than the man. And it, one of the major skills in male sexual socialization with aging is to learn to piggyback his arousal on her arousal and to feel good about that, not that he's less good of a performer or he's second class. That's so interesting, Barry, because I think that in many ways is the complete opposite of what young men say about that a partner's orgasm is validation of his prowess. Right. That's another one of those myths. Remember, and this is something that is very hard for people to talk about in specifics, and that is about one out of three women who really enjoy sex and enjoy orgasm are not orgasmic during intercourse. And the myth is the way to get her to be orgasmic during intercourse is longer, harder intercourse with a stronger erection. The reality for most couples, and one of the things that I love about the sex field is that it's so complex and that one size never fits all sexually. But for most couples, the key is multiple stimulation both before and during intercourse. And that's not only true of women, it's also true of men. And when you're looking at adults, people over 40, you know, between 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80, there are so many more similarities and differences. There's a lot of difference in adolescence and young adulthood, but not in adulthood. And the more you look at you, you turn towards your partner as your intimate neurotic friend, the better off it is for, for you, and it's better off for your partner and your relationship. And the communication. You know, I see so many couples where they're not talking, they're not expressing what they really feel, they are making assumptions about what the other person is thinking and feeling, and they get it wrong, I think, about 80% of the time, because, you know, I do the same thing, right? And, you know, without communication, it creates its own sort of myth personal mythology. I have seen couples where the man is on androgen deprivation therapy, right? He has zero sexual desire. It doesn't even occur to him to, to be a physically affectionate. And I, and I don't mean sex. I mean holding hands while watching a movie. And 
not infrequently, the couple will be sitting in my office in pre-COVID days. <laughs> now, I, now if I get to see them on video, it's the best. And boy, I miss, you know, I miss having them there. That the woman will say to me, I know he's got someone on the side. I know he has, he's busy with somebody else because why does he no longer desire me? And, you know, the poor man is sitting there like a deer in the headlights because he's never heard this before. It's absolutely not the case. And it's sad. It is. It's very sad. But the other thing that males and females seldom talk about, females talk about it much more, is the concept of the value of responsive sexual desire as opposed to spontaneous sexual desire. But for men with illness and disability, and treatments that interfere with desire, the core concept is valuing responsive male sexual desire and defining male sexuality as not just intercourse. The old definition was it was affection and it was intercourse. The new definition is it's sensual touch, playful touch, erotic touch. And you know, the major reason, at least my view, that men fail with Viagra and Cialis is it isn't the drug's fault. It's the fact that no one has told the man or the couple two basic things. The one is don't transition to intercourse when you're subject, when you get an erection. Your subjective arousal is going to be about four or five. Transition to intercourse when your subjective arousal ideally is eight or at least seven. And subjective arousal is more important than objective arousal in terms of erection. And then secondly, how you integrate the medical interventions into your couple's sexual style of intimacy, pleasuring, and eroticism. But how, how it really does work for you. What does feel right about it rather than looking for the medication or the injection to do it all? I hate the idea of using biomedical interventions as a standalone. You know, I've been, I'm an adult onset diabetic. I was first diagnosed at 27. In my diabetic treatment, the, the emphasis is always on taking medications, which I started taking my 50, but it was about stopping drinking. It was about uh, reducing your weight. It was about exercising. It was about keeping your, uh, it was about giving, you know, the thing, when I find out I'm terminally ill, you know, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to get a quart of uh, pineapple juice. I love pineapple juice, but it's not good for my diabetes. This idea that you use a medical intervention as a standalone makes no sense. Yeah, and they often don't work. And I think that there, you know, there are a whole host of reasons why they don't work. Um, I think that this the psychological or emotional pressure that the man puts on himself because you know you see those ads and they're you know, they're groovy, right? And it's always younger, you know, people in their 20s or 30s. There's no ref reflection of a man in his 60s or beyond. Um, and they're always, you know, hellishly attractive. Uh, <laughs> that's not the reality for, me, for many of us. Um, you know, so there's this enormous pressure. I took this pill that cost whatever it cost. It has to work. And I think men often just absolutely psych themselves out. I think often men don't talk to their partner about, are you free this afternoon or are you going out for a walk with your sister? Men hide the fact that they're taking this me these medications. I've had men hide the fact that they're, well, trying to hide the fact that they're using injections. 
Right. They go in, they do it in the bathroom and come out with an erection. And they have to hide it. You know, they have to hide the paraphernalia. It's part of this notion of shamefulness, that I'm not a real man because I have to do this. But you know what I think is the most valuable kind of notion is that I think for most men, if they're going to take a pro-erection medication, Cialis is a daily low dose of Cialis is often more helpful. But I say to them that the most helpful thing, especially with their partner there, is nobody gets the results that you see in the, in the ads. And that is really helpful for people to understand. And that's part of the idea of good enough sex, that when things go well, whether you're taking medication or not, 85% of the time, sex will flow from comfort to pleasure to arousal, to erotic flow, to intercourse and orgasm. That's the flow. But if it doesn't flow, the worst thing that you do is you apologize or you panic. You need to turn towards your partner and say, tonight's not going to be an intercourse night, but let's make it a good night. Let's have a sensual date. Let's have an erotic non-intercourse date. Let's have a good time sexually. And I need you to be present for it to be a good time, as well as I need to, to stay there rather than be, you know, the most anti-erotic things people do is feel self-conscious and apologize. It really takes away from their sexuality. And women are so good at that. I've put on 10 pounds, you know, all the COVID-20 that they're talking about. <laughs> um, I have stretch marks. I, you know, I haven't shaved my legs. I mean, you know, there's a, there's a myriad of things that women do to themselves. And, and it's interesting to consider that men do the same thing, perhaps not in the same way, because it, it really is phallus focused. I just wanted to, to swing back to that patient of mine, because I think this feeds into the whole thing about eroticism. This patient of mine who had an implant he was the first patient of mine that I had referred to a urologist who did the implant. And I remember him actually coming to see me from the hospital where I work is attached to the big hospital. And he showed up in his, you know, patient, blue patient gown with slippers on. And, you know, and I said to him, because he was still in the hospital at this point, And I said, you know, tell me about this. Well, you know, he said he didn't anticipate this much pain. That was the first thing. And I asked him to keep in touch with me so that I would learn from him what was working, what, what it felt like. And I remember him coming to see me and he said, you know, the thing that he misses the most is the sensation of arousal and the erotic nature that you engage that little pump in the scrotum and boom, you have this rigid erection, but it's mechanical. It's not sensual at all. And the partner isn't involved in it. That one of the things that I think, Mike's, I have had little experience with penile prosthesis because I don't think usually they work with people. It doesn't get integrated into the relationship. But if you're going to do a penile prosthesis, one of the things you've got to understand is you want to increase subjective arousal. You know, saying to a man, subjective arousal is more important than objective arousal is really hard, especially men with prosthesis, because they've got a, they look like they're, they've got a, it, it's a 10 for them in terms of arousal. It's actually a two or three. They're not turned on. They've got to do something that turns them on and their partner on. And for most people, that means partner interaction arousal. You know, when I ask my college students, what keeps sex alive in an ongoing relationship? They get their hands up and they say, you act out sexual fantasies and you watch porn together. 
there is very little evidence that that works with Joe and Jane average. With Joe and Jane average, what works is partner interaction arousal. The more your partner is present and aroused, the more you become present and aroused. It's like a sexual dance. It's like a tango, sexual tango. You know, I'm thinking about the work that Debbie Hobenik uh, has done on uh, lubricant use in women. And one of the things that really stood out for me, and I'm not opposed to lubricants at all, and I think they're really important for aging women, for women after childbirth, for women who've had gynecologic cancer or breast cancer for that matter. But the number of young women, like women in their 20s who are using lubricants, and for me, that is all about lack of arousal, wanting to get things over and done with, right, to please their partner or whatever, to seem to appear to be aroused physically, but they're not. Right. And they lie to themselves and to their partner. One of the worst of all the suggestions and self-help suggestions is to fake orgasms and make your partner feel better. That doesn't make your partner feel better or you feel better or the relationship to thrive. You know, my reading of the data, and I'd be interested in your thoughts about this, Anne, is that it's normal for about 40% of sexual, among couples that are, feel good about themselves as a sexual couple, that about 40% have mutual synchronous sex, which is the best. But most sex is asynchronous, which is fine and healthy. Better for one partner than the other, but okay for the other partner. But among happily married sexually functional folks, 5 to 15% of their sexual encounters are dissatisfying or dysfunctional. It's normal to have lousy sex. And being able to turn to your partner and say, that was really a bummer. But that's okay. Let's get together in the next couple of days. I still care about you. I still love you. I still want to be sexual with you. The key element in sex is desire. And the key element of a healthy relationship is when sex doesn't flow, you don't panic, you don't apologize, you turn towards your partner and say, let's make this a fun time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think in terms of faking anything, faking arousal, right? Faking orgasm. There comes a point where you feel empowered enough. I'm talking as a woman, right? You feel empowered enough or mature enough or dissatisfied enough to actually have to say, this hasn't been working for me. It's really hard to admit that you've been faking for X number of years. That is, you know, that is not helpful because what else are you lying about? But here's one thought. You know, one of the things that I think is really valuable for both men and women maybe especially for men, but for women too, for sure, is if you do not have the power to veto a sexual scenario or technique, you don't really have the freedom to embrace sexuality. So I say to my partner, you can have up to three things that you can veto, and your partner will honor your veto. But you, you don't have the right to avoid. Do you know the most common thing that males veto? What? They veto being filleted to orgasm. About one out of five men find being filleted, especially to orgasm, is not a positive experience. Now, for most, you know, in the in the myths, it's always a positive experience for all men. That's what they really want. And for many men, 
the inflated organ, the inflated is really a very high arousal. But for about one out of five, it is a negative, but they can never admit it or say that to their partner. It's an interesting example about people and their complexity rather than this. I think it also speaks to the lack of communication. I talk about that over time, many of us begin to act like dolphins and whales, right? We recognize the squeaks and the grunts of our partner and what that means, and they do to us, and we just lose the words, and the words are so important. I mean, I think, you know, really that lies at the key of what you're saying about you turn to your partner and you say, you know, it wasn't great. And it might, it's, it's not their fault necessarily. Maybe your head was just somewhere else. No, you were distracted. But you know, the worst time to talk sex, I really believe this, is when you're nude in bed after a negative experience. People say and do things that really hurt. The best time to talk sex is in your office or somebody like you, you, you know, a clinician's office. But the best time for a couple who are not in therapy is the day before a sexual date on a walk over a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and says, you know, the next time we're sexual, I'd like to try this, this, or this. And, you know, that's one of the most important of the psychosexual skill exercises about desire is each of you get a chance to create your own scenario and then play it out. Because that's the thing with sex therapy as opposed to just talking, you actually play it out. And I've done this with over a thousand folks. I've never done it with a couple who have the exact same scenario in terms of intimacy, in terms of sensuality, in terms of playfulness, in terms of arousal and eroticism. It's really fascinating. And that's a really important, empowering and motivating learning for couples. That's so interesting. And I think we need to stop here. And I think that's a really, I think that's a really good place to stop as well is, you know, recognizing that we are individuals and we are responsible for our own orgasms, right? Um, right. Absolutely. And our own desire too. Absolutely. There's no right or wrong. That notion that says, what is your unique preferences? And it's a one-two combination of personal responsibility intimate sexual team. But this was fun. Thank you, Barry, so much. Think about getting Barry's book available at all online bookstores and please at your independent bookstore if you can actually go there these days. That was just a fascinating talk. And, and you know, I think we could talk for hours about male sexuality because it really is something that is remains largely unspoken in polite and impolite society. So that's it for Sexually Speaking this time. There'll be more from me with another guest in the coming weeks. If there's a topic you're particularly interested in hearing about, or if you want to contact me about private counseling, please email me at counseling at and that's counseling with two L's.